Let's continue our study of the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to John 19. If not, I will read it for you. I promise to read it accurately. I got to quit making that promise. First time I ever said that, I ended up reading it wrong. We'll look at uh, verses 1 through 16 of John 19. Here's the word of God. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man... You are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So read the words of the living God. 
Our Father, we ask this morning that your spirit would fill us and open the word of God to us and that every person in this room would have a very different cry than these Jews, that we would say, we have no king but Jesus. Make it so in our hearts, in our mouths, and in our city, we pray. Amen. So there's an old literary device called irony. If you've studied literature, you know something about dramatic irony. It's not the irony that we use all the time. There was a very popular song 15 or 20 years ago uh, called Ironic. That part of what was ironic about that song is nothing in the song really spoke of irony. But irony in the dramatic sense is a literary form where the audience knows something that the characters in the story don't know. If you've seen the original Star Wars movies, the ones worth watching, you know there's a time in which we discover the true relationship between Leah and Luke, and then the rest of the time you're going, please don't kiss, please don't kiss, please don't kiss, because we know something the characters don't know. And in case you've not seen the original Star Wars, I'm not going to give it away. No spoiler alerts here. But that's irony. We know something, but the characters don't know it. Last week, as we ended our sermon in, in our study of John 18, we saw a little bit of irony. Remember, the Jews were clamoring for Jesus' crucifixion, as we saw in our text today. And Pilate is trying to get out of executing Jesus. And he says, I have this tradition that on the Passover time, I will release one of your prisoners, one of the prisoners that we have of your people. And so I can release Jesus or I can re release for you Barabbas. And if you recall, we talked about how Barabbas was a thief and a murderer and an insurrectionist. He had mounted a rebellion against the Roman government. And the Jews clamored for his release and said, no, we want you to kill Jesus. And they had brought Jesus up on charges of being the rebel, the insurrectionist. And so the irony is, we know as the audience, Jesus was innocent of insurrection. Barabbas was guilty of insurrection. Barabbas was let go, and Jesus was executed. And we talked about another piece of irony in that story. History tells us that Barabbas had another name, and his name was Jesus Barabbas. The trade was Jesus, who was innocent, was executed, and Jesus, who was guilty, was set free. There's a third element of irony in this. Barabbas, the name itself. If you know Hebrew, which I'm sure you all do, bar of Barabbas means son. Now, I think you probably know 
the second part of the name if I pronounce it a little bit differently? Instead of saying Barabbas, what if I said Bar-Abbas? What is the Hebrew word Abba? Daddy or father. The name Barabbas in Hebrew means son of the father. Do you see in the providence of God what happened? This man who is named Jesus, son of the Father, who deserves to be crucified, is set free. And the one who is truly Jesus, son of the Father, though he is innocent, is crucified. Well, as we look at our text today in chapter 19, we're going to see repeated examples of irony, things that we know, but the characters in the story do not know. So let's look at it together. Chapter 19 begins with, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Scourge is not a word that we use every day in the 21st century. It could be translated flog, but flog is not a word that we use every day in 21st century. Neither of them are fun words because they have to do with beating, with whipping. Now, in ancient Roman culture, there were three different levels of scourging. The first level was the mildest of the three, and this is not the kind of beating that anybody wants. I mean, I suppose there's no kind of beating anybody wants. But if you're going to get a scourging, you want level one. It was a relatively minor kind of whipping that was meant to discourage further disobedience. Then there was level two, which was more intense, as you would imagine. And then there was level three. This is the one that if you've seen uh, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, this is the one he portrayed, and he portrayed it exceptionally accurately. There is a, a moment in that movie, I've only seen it once, I don't think I could watch it again. Uh, how many of you have seen it, by the way? Yeah, most of you. Uh, I haven't let my wife see it, I'm not sure she can handle it. Uh, it it's... Yeah, it's just, it's one of those, I remember distinctly when it was all done, leaving the theater, I went with a good buddy of mine, and we didn't say a word all the way home. You're, you're just kind of numb from watching the, the, the whipping, the scourging that Jesus underwent. And this third level of scourging, they would tie the, uh, the criminal to a post and then two different soldiers typically would take a, a kind of a rod that had several leather straps on it and tied to those leather straps were either little chips of metal or little chips of bone. And there was no limit to how many times the soldiers were permitted to, to beat the person. They stopped either because the soldiers were worn out Think about that. They would stop because the soldiers had no more energy left to continue the whipping, or because 
the commanding officer realized if we keep going, the victim, the, the criminal will die, and we don't want them dead yet. This is in preparation to crucifixion. And the thought was, uh, we want them close to death so they won't hang on the cross forever, for, for days. There's a scene in the movie that I will, never, I will never forget where they show the soldiers scourging Jesus and the, the, the cameras pan away to something else and they come back and the soldiers are bent over like this, completely exhausted from whipping this man. It's a powerful scene. And if you remember, Jesus is so, so beaten down that he can't carry his cross. This is a, a strong carpenter by trade, and he can't carry the, the wood beam to Golgotha. Jesus received both level one and level three. This one is level one. He's not been sentenced yet. So this is not the scourging in preparation for crucifixion. Pilate is still trying to find a way to release Jesus. So what he does is he beats him, the level one, and he's hoping the Jews will receive that as enough so that he can let Jesus go. Is that what happened? No. So he has him scourged, and in verse 2 it says, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him, and they began to come up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. So I told you last week that there was no love loss between the Romans and the Jews. Pilate did not care for these people at all. And there was constant battles back and forth. Remember, the Jews would send word back to Caesar that Pilate was causing riots and, and provoking them and that kind of thing. And, and so there's this taunting back and forth constantly between Pilate and the Jews. And, you know, if the, if the governor doesn't like a people, then you can imagine those under the governor's authority will also dislike the people. So he, he, the soldiers see what's going on here. This is the man that those Jews, those people think is the king is, is their king, and here he is on trial. So it's their job to beat him, and they do, but they don't stop there. You know, you can imagine one of them over here doing something, and the others are flogging him, and he's doing something, and they finally say, Claudius, what are you doing? Well, he's a king, so he needs a crown. And no doubt bloodying his own hands, pulling this thorn bush and twisting it around into this crown that he comes over and shoves into the temple of Jesus. And the particular bush that he would have gotten this thorn limb from uh, had needles up to a foot long. Can you imagine that being pressed down into your head? And then they say, oh, it's a king. He's got a crown. Well, well he needs a robe. And so they put a robe, a purple robe, which represented royalty. Put the robe around him. Oh, and he's a king, so we should bow down to him. So they would bow down on their knees. Hail, king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. And here's our first bit of irony in this story. They were mocking. They didn't believe this for a minute. But they spoke better than they knew. 
this really is the king of the Jews. In fact, not only is he the king of the Jews, but he is the king of the universe. All authority in heaven and earth will be given to him in a matter of two days. And what they did not know then was that there would come a day when they would bow before him again. Only they would not be mocking him this time. This time they would see him on the throne of heaven and have to give an account for their treatment of him. Mocking, hail, king of the Jews, oh, look at the king of the Jews, smack. As I was studying this this week, I was thinking, I don't think I have ever been slapped on my face in my entire life. I don't, I I mean, my my parents didn't do that. I'm trying to remember. I don't think friends, I don't think I ever had a girl, (laughs) my wife. No, I don't think I've ever been slapped. Have you ever slapped me? Yeah, I don't think so. I'd probably remember that. Of course, I'd probably be like our kids and go, oh, is that supposed to hurt? Anyway, you know how in, some of you are just now getting that, yeah. You know, there, I mean, I'm sure getting slapped in the face is painful. And in some cultures, it's even more so. But even in our culture, there's just something exceedingly insulting about being slapped in the face. Now, again, in some cultures, it is, is right up there at the top of the most insulting things you can do. Imagine these men slapping anybody, but slapping the Son of God. And they did it repeatedly. Pilate came out again and said to them, so he's speaking to the Jews, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know, and here comes the second declaration of Pilate, I find no guilt in him. Second time. He said it in last week's text. He says it again. I find no guilt in this man. This tells us something about Pilate. He's not a just judge. How would you respond if we had a government that punished people and declared at the same time, we don't find them guilty, but we're going to punish them anyway? Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, behold the man. Behold, look at the man. There's at least two levels of irony here. This really is the man. In fact, it could be argued that he is the only true 
man who's ever lived. What I mean is this. What was man created to do? In the beginning, God created heavens and earth, and he created a garden, and he put the man that he had formed out of the dust in the garden. And he said, take care of the garden, cultivate it, protect it, rule and subdue the earth, reproduce, multiply, fill the earth. And the assumption all the way through is you're going to do it in obedience to me. You're, you're my vice regent. You're, you're the king of the high king. And, and go fill this earth with those who will worship me. That was the original command given to the man. Worship God on this earth. And how long did Adam worship God on this earth? About five minutes? I mean, we don't know how long it was before the fall. But he gives him a partner, Eve, and Adam stands there and watches as his wife talks to a snake. Gentlemen, learn from that. And the snake says, go ahead and disobey God. And she does, and then he does. And from that point forward, every man and woman disobeyed God. This, Jesus, is the only man in the history of the world who has obeyed God perfectly. Behold, the man. Everything man was supposed to be, Jesus is. But there's another level of irony here. There is a prophecy in the Old Testament in Zechariah that points forward to this event. God had foretold of this, the coming of this. The, the, the imagery is a little bit different, but I think you will catch it. Let me put it up for you. Zechariah, by the way, is the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation. Lots of apocalyptic uh, language, lots of symbolism and that kind of thing. Well, here's what it says. Take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua. Joshua is a Hebrew name. I know you guys are smart. Do you know what the Greek name of Joshua is? Jesus. See what's going on here? Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Guess who our high priest is? Jesus. That's always the answer, right? Next slide. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold a man, or could be behold the man, whose name is branch, sprout, limb coming off of the trunk. That's Jesus. He will be, or for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Now, in their mind, they're thinking the structure where they perform sacrifices. But what did Jesus come to do? He came to build us, the spiritual temple. Next slide. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. The council of peace will be between the two offices. 
Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. Do you see, even hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, God predicts that Joshua will sit on the throne and he will receive a crown and he will say, Behold the man. And here Jesus is. And Pilate, unaware what he is doing, is fulfilling the prophecy when he says, Behold the man. Well, the Jews saw him, all right. They beheld him. Verse 6 says, so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out. It's the wrong kind of music for this word. Crucify. Crucify. Behold the man. Jews, here's the man. Now what is Pilate doing here? He's displaying this beaten man who looks pathetic, right? He's, he's bruised, bloody. He's got this mockery of a crown on. He's got the mockery robe on. He's, he's kind of weakened in this costume. And what Pilate's trying to do is say, look, this is the man you're afraid of? This is the man you've brought to me in the middle of the night that you're so worried about. Look at him. He's pathetic. Hoping they'll say, okay, fine. You've, you've beaten him enough. Let's move on. No, they are thirsty for his blood. Crucify him. Hang him on the cross. Mark tells us in his gospel, Mark 15 says, that Pilate knew their motivation. They turned him over to Pilate out of envy. Mark 15, 10. Can you imagine political rulers treating someone unfairly out of envy? Putting someone on trial merely out of envy? It's a good thing it only happened once, huh? Have you ever thought about how powerful a force envy is to people in authority? The very first Jewish king was King Saul. And you recall when David is chosen to replace Saul, all the maidens, all the singers in the, in the land start singing a song. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. This made Saul furious. And multiple times he tried to kill David out of envy, because now everyone is following David. There's something about power that makes people crazy with jealousy, and they become stupid. I tell my kids all the time, sin makes us stupid. This is the Son of God who's done nothing wrong, and he looks like a joke. No, do not let him go. We want him 
dead. Well, Pilate is, is miffed. He's, he's frustrated. He's angry at this. He doesn't understand why they won't follow his, his counsel here. And he says, take them yourselves and crucify him. And he says for the third time, for I find no guilt in him. You, you guys take him and crucify him, which is just a taunt because they don't have the authority to crucify him, and he knows that. That's why they brought him here, because they can't do it. They don't have jurisdiction. They don't have, it's not under the law. They can't do this. And he said, oh, take them yourselves. Knowing full well, they can't do anything about it. The Jews say, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because... He made himself out to be the son of God. Now, they brought him up on political charges. He claims to be a king. Pilate, that should concern you, this man who claims to be a king. Now, they're switching to theology. This man claims to be the son of God. Now, for the Jews, when they're, when, what they meant was he claimed to be the Messiah, they, don't, they weren't thinking deity, like we would think. They're not thinking actual God. But the word son of God in the Old Testament was a term for the Messiah. Sometimes it was used for kings. Sometimes it was used for angels. But it was, it was the chosen one, the, the, the one who was coming. But uh, Pilate is a Roman. And he's a very superstitious polytheist. He believes in all the gods. When he hears this man claim to be the son of God, he thinks, what? Which one? Which God is he a son of? And it says, he was very much more afraid. And he drags him back in the praetorium and says, Jesus, who really are you? Where are you from? Now he's a little, well, he's a lot nervous. Already he's jittery because he knows he has beaten an innocent man. He knows the Jews are clamoring for his crucifixion, and he's this close to executing an innocent man. So he's got some inner, inner conflict, and now he's told this guy claims to be the son of God. Where are you from, Jesus? Who are you? Jesus gave him no answer. Now Pilate gets in his face. What? You do not speak to me? Do you know who I am? Do you know who it is you're not speaking to? I have the authority to have you released. And I have the authority to have you crucified. And you're going to stand there and say nothing? Jesus says, okay, I'll answer you. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So there is a nuance here in the Greek. For those of you who are Greek students or who are someday going to be Greek students, this is why it matters, okay? There is a nuance here in the Greek that does not come across in the English. And I'm going to spare you the intricate details because most of you would make sense to you anyway. But the it was given is a participle. And I'm sure you all know what participles are, so I won't take the time to review that, right? 
I heard one honest person out there say no. It's a participle, and in Greek, participles are the same. Uh, I said I wasn't going to do this. Um, there's a correlation to the noun that a participle is modifying, okay? And the, the, the case endings are the same in the participle and in the noun it's modifying. If you've taken Spanish or any of those kind of languages, there's a similarity there. So authority, when, when, Pilate, when Jesus says you would have no authority for it has been unless it had been given to you, the it has been given is a participle that does not modify authority, even though that's what it sounds like in English. So here's the bottom line, okay, forget all that. Here's the bottom line. Jesus is not saying you are in a position of authority because God gave you the position of authority. All authority comes from God. That is true. And Paul says that in Romans 13 very clearly. But that is not the emphasis here. This statement is a statement of God's providence to get to this moment. What he's saying, what Jesus is saying is, the only reason you have authority over me, Pilate, is because God has brought these events to pass so that right here, right now, I'm standing under your authority. Any Greek reader would pick, pick up on that. What Jesus is doing is saying, you think you're in control. The Jews think they are in control. God is in control. This entire event is not an accident. It's not primarily the work of the Jews or Pilate. God brought this to pass. I'm under your authority right now because it's been given to you by God for this moment. How many times has, have we seen Jesus predicting this whole thing? This was the plan. This is the plan going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. I summarized a portion of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 3, you remember, is when they disobeyed. And when God punishes the snake for his part in all this, he says, someday that woman's going to have a child and you're going to bruise his heel. That's the cross. Satan is at work here and he is active in putting Jesus on the cross. That's bruising his heel. Of course, if Satan had paid more attention to the prophecy, he would have realized, oh no, because when I bruise his heel, he's going to crush my head. But I guess he can't read all the will. Then we have Isaiah 53. When Messiah comes, by his wounds we will be healed, by his stripes our iniquities will be taken away. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus predicted this whole event. Matthew chapter 20 says this, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests. That was no accident. Remember the chief priests arresting Jesus, being delivered by Judas? That was all part of the plan. And the scribes, and they will condemn him to death 
and will hand him over to the Gentiles, that's the Roman governor, and notice what he says, to mock and scourge and crucify him. This is exactly how God had planned it. Mocked, scourged, crucified. Jesus says to Pilate, the only reason I'm here before you is because it's been given by God for you to have authority to sentence me to death. Peter will pick up on this, and in chapter 2 of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, he will say to the Jews, according to the predetermined plan of God, you crucified Jesus at the hands of godless men. All three parties are named there as well. The godless men are the Romans who actually nailed the spikes into Jesus' hands. You are the Jews. You, by clamoring, crucify, crucify, you're the ones that forced the Romans to do it. And it was all part of the predetermined plan of God. You know this. Before the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. From the day that God said, let there be light, everything has been working toward this event where Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. As a result of the, oh, I still, I skipped this last line of the verse 11. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate, I'm here because it's been given to you, and you're sinning, but there is a greater sin that's being committed here. The one who handed me over is guilty. So you've got God's plan being worked out. God is sovereign. His providence brings everything to pass. But none of that absolves men and women from our responsibility. When you freely sin, you will be held accountable for your sin, even though God's will includes our disobedience. How those two come together, I have no idea, and neither do you. But the Bible teaches both. God is sovereign, and man is responsible. And here, he says, you, Pilate, are responsible, but there's somebody else even more responsible, the one who handed me over. We don't know who that is exactly. Some think it's Judas, but I don't think so, because Judas is not the one who handed Jesus over to Pilate. Caiaphas is the one who handed him over to Pilate. And the high priest here stands for the whole Jewish people. <laughs> Can you imagine being Pilate? There is a greater sin than the one you've committed. You're committing sin, but there is greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And here we hear the same thing they've done in the past. Pilate, if you let this man go, this guy who claimed to be a king, we will make sure Caesar finds out about it, that you let this insurrectionist go. And if you 
force our hand and we let Caesar know, you know he's going to come and he's probably getting good and tired of having to respond to us appealing to him for your negligence. There's some other historical data here that Pilate was on the edge with Caesar anyway. Pilate had a good friend named Sejanus, and there was some other stuff going on. And Sejanus was a, a friend of Caesar that became a technical term, but there's a lot of other historical things going on here that it sounds like Pilate was already somewhat precarious in Caesar's mind. And so this threat was a real threat to Pilate's job. So what does he do? What does the spineless, unjust governor do? Those are my words. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. I think what Pilate's doing is mocking the Jews again. This man is a farce. He is not a threat. Look at him. He's weak, but this is your king. They cried, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Again, the irony. Behold your king. Shall I crucify your king? No, he's not our king. Crucify him. And the reality is that we know he was their king. And the chief priests answered, remember the question? Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests those placed in authority over the nation of Israel, those whose job it was to teach the people of Israel the things of God and to take the sacrifices from the people to God, the ones who were given rule by God over the people of God, asked the question, shall I crucify your king? Their answer is, we have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine that? This is the last and the greatest irony of all. They have rung up Jesus on charges of blasphemy. That's why he should die. We have a law. The law of God says he blasphemed. He should die. The Jewish priests here, the leaders, just uttered the greatest blasphemy they could. We have no king. But the king in Rome? Caesar? They've come full circle. Way back at the beginning of the Jewish nation, God was leading the Jews. And they told Samuel, the prophet, 
We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. Here's what God said to Samuel. Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being their king. At the very beginning of the kingdom of Israel, they rejected God as their king and wanted a human named Saul. And through most of the history of Israel, they refused to obey God. And here, the chief priests, speaking on behalf of the Jewish people, cry out, crucify Jesus, we have no king but Caesar. So they handed him over to them. He handed him over to them to be crucified. Someday, Caiaphas and Annas, remember we've talked about there's the the real high priest and there's the one who has the title. Those men and all of these temple soldiers and all the scribes and all the Pharisees and all the Sadducees are going to stand before the throne of Jesus Christ and be given an account or give an account of every word that's come out of their mouth. And I'm pretty sure that as Jesus lays out the manuscript, the, the text of all of their words for which they are accountable, I'm pretty sure the final ones in big, bold letters are going to be, we have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine being the chief priest and having to give an account for crying out, we Jews have no king but the Roman king? As they reject the Son of God? That's going to be a very, very bad day for these men. It's going to be a good day for us. You remember how John started this gospel off? He came to his own, and his own did not know him. That's the Jews. But the next verse said, those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Here we are 2,000 years later, and in his mercy and his grace, we say there is no king but Jesus. We have received him, and he's given us a job. There are all kinds of people in Colorado Springs who do not know who their king is. He is their king. We don't get to choose who our king is. God chose. God put Jesus on the throne and says he is the king of all the universe. And there's a lot of people in your neighborhood, in your workplaces, in your family who do not know their king. Jim talked about it in the Sunday seminar this morning. Use an example from a school that he taught at where a guy got up in, in a public school 
preach the gospel. That's a no-no, right? Except when Jim's a the principal, then say yes, yes. And there was a, a Jewish girl who had never heard the name of Jesus before. They're all around us. And here's what we know. Along with all of these people, every knee will someday bow before Jesus. Every single one. If you do it now, you receive forgiveness of your sins. If you wait until that day, you're punished forever. Do it now. It's the better choice. And there are all kinds of people around us who will not bow the knee until that day, unless we tell them. And so that's our job, to call all people to receive forgiveness in the name of Jesus and to bow their knee now and say, Jesus is my king. If you're here today and you have not made that proclamation, then I urge you, don't let another minute go by because we don't know when the end is. Bow the knee today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your love and mercy and your sovereign grace, you have opened our hearts and our minds and our, our, our mouths to confess that Jesus is Lord. On that day, we will not hear from you, depart from me, wicked sinner. We will hear welcome to eternal life. Because you and your grace sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. He took the penalty that we deserve. And we have eternal life in his name. Father, would you fill us with your spirit and enable us, empower us, give us a zeal and a passion to call everyone to bow the knee to Jesus and receive forgiveness in his name. And Father, for anyone in this room today who's not a believer, would you open their eyes and their heart today to call upon your name for forgiveness? For we pray it in Jesus' name.